You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. But the polecats are found all throughout Europe, and there's several different species. There's even more that I want to cover now, Chris. After learning about the marbled polecat, it's just a cool creature, super fun, beautiful to look at. What can they teach us? Come on, you gotta remember it. I love this podcast. I need, okay, I wear charades. You did the vocalization. I need more than that. I need more than that, Chris. Please. while you do the vocalizers. <laughs> okay. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And we, I, what do you say? Marbled polecat. I lobbied for this. It wasn't very hard, right? I just said, Google it. So beautiful, so fun, and I learned a lot this week. And mm-hmm. first and foremost, a polecat's not a cat at all, so mm-hmm. we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then for our listeners in North America, it, a polecat is similar to a ferret, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of differences because ferrets like the domestic version. And I, of course, am madly in love in North America with the black-footed ferrets. Uh, which mm-hmm. are critically endangered, and we're going to talk all about their story. We've covered them many, many moons ago. Uh, on which podcast was that? Probably like twenty-five. Uh, no, I, was, I think it was. All right, I was going to say fifteen. It's episode fifteen, and we did them early because it was one of your your yes. favorites. Yes, and one of my uh, dear mentors, uh, Dr. Rachel Santemeyer. She worked with them a lot and helped me get into grad school and helped mm-hmm. me fall in love with um, endocrine, wildlife endocrinology, uh, physiology, and all of that. So I interviewed her, too, talking about black-footed ferrets, their physiology and conservation, and what she does, her mm-hmm. work and her team's work out of uh, Colorado to help save this critically endangered species. That Was was that episode 16, or how do we do yeah, that? Yeah, you, you interviewed her right away. And okay. their conservation story, I mean, it's it just... It's an amazing conservation success story. So, but it's ongoing, yeah, so, right? Uh, you're mm-hmm. going to talk a little oh, bit yeah. about that today. We yeah. will definitely, we'll definitely touch on on the black-footed ferret because it is the it is the cousin to the marbled mm-hmm. polecat, mm-hmm. and we'll help sort out all the taxonomy and the species and who's related to who. But the polecats are found all throughout Europe, and there's several different species. There's even more that I want to cover now, Chris. After learning about the marbled polecat, it's just a 
cool creature, super fun, beautiful to look at. And of course, it's in one of our favorite families, the mustelids. It always goes back to honey badger. Still one of my all-time favorites. I just, oh. Honey badger don't care. Oh, we laughed so hard, uh, that podcast. That really started setting the tone for for where we were a few years ago to today and, and all the laughs that we've had since. Yeah, I mean, obviously, mustelids are one of my favorite families now after covering them and learning so much about them. But I had been seeing lots of videos on social media of marbled polecats in Ukraine. Uh, you know, soldiers in the trenches. I mean, war is so awful. My heart goes out to all the all the people suffering on that part of the, the planet. But it did make me want to cover that species for them because I, I saw this marbled polecat coming up and I think they were feeding it and it'd run back off and then come back the next day and, and check on the soldiers. And, you know, well, so then there was just, one that was trapped like in a, a deep dugout trunk, mm-hmm, trench mm-hmm. and the soldiers helped figure out how to, it was tough. So yeah. they didn't want to touch it, which is always good when you encounter wildlife. But they ended up, yeah, using one of their bulletproof big old vest. Uh, they tossed that in the trench and it acted like a little bridge so yeah. the marble polecat could get out. But it did. It really got me thinking to the past couple of weeks about wildlife in war-torn areas and how it impacts their habitat, of course, and then potentially their conservation even. So there's a really unique story to talk about today with the marble polecat. Yeah. Yeah. And some good conservation stuff on the way. And then as we get going, just I want to say, Kim, thank you for joining us on Patreon. Uh, it, the support means so much to us. It, it's keeping the the lights on for us and the website running and paying the bills for, for everything that goes into producing this podcast. So thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Yes. And I want to give a huge shout out to Please Fix Share the Story as the handle name for the amazing review on iTunes, five stars, and I have, to, I, I typically don't do this, but I want to read this review mm-hmm. because it just really tickled my heart and made me smile. So it says, I am a veterinarian student interested in conservation medicine, and I love listening to this podcast. I've learned so many fun and surprising facts, and it helps me learn about species I've, I haven't encountered before. It's also so wholesome and funny. Woo-woo. It gets better. <laughs> it's sort of like sports commentators talking to each other when someone does a really impressive play. Only they're talking about whale physiology or something nerdy <laughs> like that. <laughs> and as an animal nerd, I absolutely love it. it and is. please fix and share the story. As a fellow anim- animal nerd, I love you for saying this and posting this so that other people can read it. And of course, the more you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to podcasts, the more we can grow and share these animal stories and their conservation with people all across the world. Yeah, like like the marbled polecat, you know, and, and Spotify. That's the new uh, new big one, too. So if you can go into Spotify and just drop a five-star review, we appreciate it. And then just one last shout-out to Christian for sending us those beautiful photos from the Swiss Alps. Yeah, The bearded vultures. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Awesome. And so if you're listening and you haven't checked us out on social media at All Creatures Pod on Instagram, we put up a lot of things that we are currently working on, um, some of the research I'm doing, so, uh, when Chris and I travel to different places and see wildlife, and then also, some of our listeners send in their wildlife sightings, and we get to share them with you guys. So. Yeah, feel free to, to to send those to us, allcreaturespod at gmail.com, and, and we'll definitely push them out on social media, you know, wherever you are in the world. But yeah, the Swiss Alps, seeing that bearded vulture, it's just, oh, it was just a wonderful episode. Check it out if you haven't listened to that one yet. But Marble Polecat is the highlight of today, and they deserve all the spotlight because they just... 
Oh, they're gorgeous. They are gorgeous animals. They're stunning. I think I have about six slides just of their pictures. I have them uh, vertically, horizontally, from this side, from that side, from just their face. I zoomed into their tail. So I'm not going to be able to do the marble polecat justice with their description. If you're not driving, definitely uh, check it out on Google Images or, of course, on our show notes. We'll have some photos up there at allcreaturespod.com. But in general, to describe the marble polecat, it has a body style a lot like a ferret or weasel, or a stoat, or a mink, uh, with that long body, with short legs, long claws that are used for digging and burrowing. We'll talk about that when we get to behavior. And the nose of the marble polecat, it has a shorter muzzle uh, with really prominent, noticeable ears. Uh, They're round like Mickey Mouse, and they're black on the bottom with white fur on top. And they really stand out in their cute little face. But it's the color that just Mm -hmm. really separates the marble polecat from any other polecat and or domestic ferret. So the coat is just beautiful. It's black or dark brown. I almost want to call it a sable brown Mm -hmm. on its underbelly, chest, legs. And then, as their namesake says, on the dorsal side or the top across their back, uh, the marble polecat has that dark brown coloring, but then there's cream, white, sometimes light reddish to orangish colored marbling or almost look like white splotches all along its back, side, and belly. Mm-hmm. Just stunning. And then their tail is really floofy, if that's a word. It's fluffy, I suppose. Uh, and it's multicolored. So it has dark brown. It's dark brown at the base with these yellowish to creamyish colored uh, band in the mid region and then grizzled white long hair on it in a black tip. And then lastly, their face has basically like a mask on it. Mm-hmm. So their ears, remember, if you remember, are black and then white on the top. And then across their eyes is a white band. And then their eyes are black across their nose and fur. So they look like they have that mask on. Like, I mean, very, very similar in the face to a black-footed ferret. And, yeah, almost a raccoon, maybe? Mask? Yeah, the, ma- the mask. That's it, it, where the, that comes The face in, is sure. just oh, adorable and that little brown nose. Like, you just want to go. Boop. And then white, of course, that creamy white color yeah. around their nose and their yeah. chin. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah their, their face has this, like, mask striped appearance on it. And yeah, they, I mean, they're every pair, that's, that's why I took so many pictures of them from so many different angles. Cause it's like, oh, the face, wait, oh, the ears. Oh, mm-hmm. I even took, I even took a picture of them standing upright. Cause they do that a lot. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about that in behavior. Uh, and their bellies are gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though they're just kind of this black brownish color, but you can see a little bit of the marbling, um, on their undersides when they stand up and then the tail, I mean, yeah. everything yeah, right was done with this, this creature as far as their coat pattern goes, in my opinion. Yeah. Very handsome little fellas or very beautiful uh, little gals. Gorgeous animals and, you know, but not small. Like some of the weasels or, you know, minks and stuff, you you, you tend to think of them small. I mean, they could be up to 26 inches long, mm-hmm. nose to tail. So mm-hmm. body length without tail still 16 inches. So that's a good size ferret, right? I've seen some ferrets maybe that big in the day. Then that tail goes out maybe another 10 inches. So yeah, it's long tail. 
Prominent, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Up to 66 centimeters. Uh, weight, uh, about a pound, you know, or 600 grams. So not not the heaviest of, of animals, but gorgeous. And like Angie said, Europe and Asia is where you're going to find the marble polecat. Now, like I said, seeing them on social media in the war zone in Ukraine, you know, heart goes out to, to them. And I, you're right, like for the animals in the area too that are suffering with stress or have been killed because of uh, whatever, not talking politics. But the range is Eurasia, but mainly Asia, I think. Like you can go all the way over to China, Mongolia, then go across, you know, like Kazakhstan, uh, parts of Russia, uh, parts of Ukraine, uh, down into the Middle East or Southwest Asia. So Iraq and Syria, Israel, I know, has has some marble polecats. Then going into Europe, you're talking, you know, some parts of Eastern Europe, but then also in Turkey and the north of Greece, so Macedonia, those areas is where they're seen. So it's a it's a very large range, but it's not like there's marble polecats all across it. They're in little spots. You know, like I said, there is higher densities in Israel. They actually Sinai of Egypt. They've they have have seen them there, but they're not like spread throughout this robust population. It's just pockets here and there throughout that range. Well, yeah, Chris, it is a really vast region, but there's these smaller subpopulations, if you will. And the IUCN does consider them vulnerable uh, because of habitat fragmentation uh, and habitat loss. So, yeah, they're definitely a polecat that we need to keep an eye on. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of stuff uh, affecting them, which we're going to talk about, you know, with conservation. And, you know, today, like, I, I, I really hope Angie can jump into some of the research she's been doing, which is, which is effects, and I think that's one of the reasons we're covering this species too. But polecats and and ferrets and weasels and stoats, I know a lot of them down here in New Zealand because they are an invasive species and they're just so destructive to our nat- native birds that are not used to any predators. Right, the only mammal we had here before humans showed up were bats, so they're not they don't belong here. But in the range that they do belong, like the marble polecat. They are critical in keeping rodents in control and check. And, you know, it, it's like in wherever they are, they do such a good job. And we see things in, in social media or, or in the regular media, like in Australia, where rats and mice are invasive. And you see millions of them just destroying crops, destroying, you know, feed bins. There's been like this mouse apocalypse that happened the last couple of years in Australia where there's just millions of mice everywhere because they don't have native predators like the marble polecat keeping them in check. So I'm not saying we go to Australia and and, and obviously not introduce another problem, but you know, that's why these animals are so important to the, to the food webs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, their, their job in the ecosystem as rodent control, I mean, can't be can definitely not be over overstated. And I thought it was really cool, Chris. It's also been reported the marble polecat specifically may perform uh, communal hunting with red foxes. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's just it's, there's just so much more we're learning about them. Yeah. And quite frankly, uh, when we get to reproduction stuff, I had a I, I was able to get some information that I'll be able to share with our listeners. But there's still a lot that we don't know about them. 
but it is safe to be said that their their role as a as a main predator of small rodents uh, can, you know, definitely can't be understated. And we definitely don't want them to go the way of the black-footed ferret like mm-hmm. it did here in North America. Mm-hmm. So the black-footed ferret here in North America hunts prairie dogs as its main source of food. And throughout the 20th century, prairie dog populations de- decreased because of diseases and then excessive hunting. And so in 1960, the black-footed ferrets were put on the endangered animal species list. And by 1979, they were declared extinct. And then in 1981, a few years later, there was a small population found in Wyoming. And so uh, Fish and Game uh, Department wildlife biologists came in and were able to find 12 remaining black-footed ferrets, and they're brought into captivity. There were already a couple other black-footed ferrets in captivity in zoos and things like that, so the founding population of black-footed ferrets is 18 individuals. And then through the work with zoos and biologists and then, of course, uh, federal agencies and NGOs, they worked hard to save this animal from extinction. And in 1991, uh, about 50 captive-born juvenile ferrets were released into the wild. And as of today, there's about 370 black-footed ferrets in the wild in the Plains states running free. And each year, scientists release about 150 to 200 black-footed ferrets in 29 different re- reintroduction sites in Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Kansas, mm-hmm. New Mexico, Canada, and Mexico. So there's been about over 8,000 kits produced from these captive breeding facilities over the course of these 40 years. It's considered a very successful conservation story here in North America. However, the black-footed ferret is still considered endangered. In fact, it's the most endangered mammal in North America still to this day, 40 years later. The efforts of these scientists, in my opinion, just cannot be overstated. They're incredible. My dear friend, Dr. Santemeyer, is one of them who works very closely uh, with the fish and wildlife biologists that do all this breeding and all the uh, captive ferret caretakers. So it's just really incredible the work that they've done. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, you know, it, but it's a lot of work and time and money. And luckily, we were able to save this species so far. But with like the marbled polecat, we know they're important for the environment. They have an, an incredible role. We know their their populations are in decline. So we don't we don't want to see it go this way that we did here in North America. So uh, although, I, like I said, I'm so proud of the conservation efforts and I'm trying to help out in my own little little side niche, I tie the black-footed ferret story to the marble polecat it's because they are related. And mm-hmm. if you don't pay attention there, the populations can crash really quickly. And bringing a species back from basically extinction or from 18 individuals is not easy. It comes mm-hmm. with problems. It comes mm-hmm. with bottleneck populations, so lack of genetic diversity. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. I'm trying to get Dr. Santemeyer to bring me out to some of the Colorado sites. She usually goes a couple times a year to um, release them and then also monitor some of the ones that are in the wild to see how they're doing. So and then she's like, are you sure? Because you know they're nocturnal and we're up pretty much all night for like mm-hmm. like three nights in a row. And I said, well, let my uh, let my toddler get a little bit older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I'll come and fly out there and hang out with you guys. 
but no, that is definitely on my bucket list because I want to see what she does. And I, I love the Blackfooted Ferrets uh, there. It's an incredible story. Well, and then, so in our social media this last couple of weeks, you sent me some pictures of you in the lab running uh, BFF samples. And so your research, I can, I can, I can uh, highlight Angie a little bit because I'm so proud of, of everything you've, you've done. Uh, when I was your, Under the your, amazing guidance of you, Chris. Yeah, way back in the day, and and then and uh, my husband John, I have I got married and had two babies during all my grad school. My I uh, have that on my seven slides. years, fifteen years. I don't know how many years I was there. <laughs> it was I put Angie was a phenomenal graduate student, had two kids during your master's and PhD studies. Uh, incredible woman, incredible mind, incredible podcasting partner. I'm so I'm so so blessed and lucky to to have you. Uh, doing this with me, but your your research really you were my inspiration to start this podcast and do research in and 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 agree with you. We need to do research in endangered species. So started doing the elephant stuff, the manatee stuff, the rock hyrax stuff, the white rhino stuff that you were looking into, the phytoestrogens. So Angie, without getting into too much of the the minutia, because it's whew, read her dissertation. Very deep, incredible science, you know, creating new methods to look at these phytoestrogens in plant matter and feed that can influence reproduction. So in layman's terms, what are you doing? Because yeah, the stuff got, you developed got, <laughs> was crazy, but it was yeah, so I got, I got real nerdy amazing. there. I got real yeah. nerdy, but I was working with a team of chemists. So that's the cool thing about all you know, all great things are success stories or science in general is that they it's collaboration. I did okay in chemistry in uh, high school and college, but my goodness, when I was working on my PhD, I wish I would have paid more attention. But instead, I just yeah. took my dear chemist friend Cecilia out for a beer and was like, "Okay, give me the dummies version of, of <laughs> analytical of, chemistry of, of analytical <laughs> chemistry in a nutshell here in one night." And she did, and it was fantastic, yeah. and I learned a lot. So, but yeah, I mean. For listeners that aren't really familiar, they're maybe just podcast for the first time or haven't gone to our website, under the guidance of Chris, my grad school in general focused on nutrients and how they impact physiology, reproductive physiology, and behavior in animals. And so for my master's, I studied a molecule called DHA, which is a type of omega, omega-3 fatty acid. Mm-hmm. And Chris and I studied its bioavailability to pregnant mama horses and to their foals in utero. And then upon birth, we wanted to see if the uh, DHA, the omega-3 fatty acid, transferred in the mama's milk to the growing foal. And if so, did that impact the foal's behavior and cognition? It was so much fun. I learned a lot. I learned I do like research and staying up all night Mm -hmm. and getting no sleep and no pay and answering questions. Little pay. A little pay, a little pay. pay. Uh, And if you want to know the results for that, DM us. I'll let you know. I'll send you the the paper. Uh, But that was cool. And then so Chris and I, for... My PhD, we, we, we wanted to do some more wildlife focus. And so we um, had interest in a type of dietary non-nutrient, which were these phytoestrogens. And they're basically like plant estrogens that are found in certain types of feed like soy and alfalfa for a lot of hoof stock or animal creatures with hoof and horns eat soy-based products and alfalfa products when they're under human care. And we were looking at this preliminary work out of the great San Diego Zoo, and they were one of their researchers, Dr. Chris, Christopher Tubbs, and how these white rhinos under human care, they just 
these the females just don't cycle and the reproduction's all messed up. And he was wondering if it was phytoestrogens, but they, there hadn't really been anything to actually measure the phytoestrogens in the, in the rhino's food mm-hmm. or in the rhino's blood. And so that's where Chris and I were like, well, we can do it on horses and then transfer that information over to other species. And mm-hmm. so that's what we did for my PhD. We figured out using analytical chemistry and mass spectrometry, uh, how to measure the different types of phyto- phytoestrogens in some of these animal feeds like alfalfa and in some of the grains that horses eat and other animals eat and learned all about it. And then we wanted to see, well, is it bioavailable? And so what that means is just because you eat something, even a vitamin per se, it doesn't necessarily mean that your body's absorbing it. And so we had a lot of questions about that in horses and in rhinos and other animals. And so we were able to answer yes, indeed, horses do have it in their blood. Baby horses have it in their blood. So we think it's transferred in utero. And then we got to look at it in rhino blood. And yes, it is definitely indeed in rhino blood. And then in the past couple of years, my dear friend, Dr. Rachel Santemeyer, who works with the black-footed ferrets, was curious to know if it was in their blood and then also in their feed. But they're carnivores. And we're going to talk all about that when we get to nutrition with marble polecats. Obviously, they are carnivores. So this past couple months, I have been working on analyzing some blood donations from black-footed ferrets that are under human care and that had their blood drawn during a routine physical. And then the super novel part is I have a whole bunch of meat samples. And I'm trying to see if I can find phytoestrogens in the meat or the tissue of the meat that they eat, which Mm. that definitely hasn't been done before because I can't find hardly any scientific articles about it. I found one in like human breast tissue and I found... One and some rodent tissues. Mm-hmm. And so I'm making up the extraction procedure, of course, uh, with the help of the chemist that I'm currently working with. But yeah, it's kind of fun because I'm like, well, you know, I, maybe if I do this and that and take this from that paper mm-hmm. and this from that mm-hmm. paper. And, and that's how I did my PhD. It was a lot of that was a ton of trial and yes. error. A lot. You know, you had to read that bad boy. You and like mm-hmm. the two other people that read it. Poor guy. I feel sorry for that. Those people. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was, yes. Uh, if you're an analytical chemist, DM me. You will love it. You will love yes. my dissertation yeah. to pieces. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, now now it's fun because now I'm just uh, volunteering my, yeah, and of course, I just volunteer my time. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can answer some questions about what the black-footed ferrets are eating, what's in their blood in regard to phytoestrogens. Uh, and the whole goal is to help their reproduction, right? With the ultimate goal being to improve the reproduction of black-footed ferrets under human care because sometimes they do have low fertility and the researchers don't know why. They don't know if it's dietary. They don't know if it's genetic. And so I'm, I'm kind of on the dietary team to help answer some of those questions. Yeah. I mean, it, it shows you how complex conservation is. And, you know, again- uh, It takes it, a village, man. Yeah. Yeah. Think about it. Analytical chemistry and, you know, to, to, to bring this full circle, it's like you, you talked about you know, the black-footed ferret was extinct. We yes. found this one small population. Zoos and conservation organizations were able to step in and save this species from extinction. Now they're having some trouble. So, you know, under human care, how can we help them? And you're part of that team and that effort. So, you know, the work that you do will ripple on for hopefully generations and helping save the species. So it, it, I love it. I love when you you talk about it. It's 
Maybe not so much the the minutia of the analytical chemistry, because I'm like, oh, God. Okay, here we go. But just the, the impacts that your yeah. research Yeah, oh, absolutely. And the other thing, too, that people might not be so aware of is, uh, as far as research funding goes, there's n- not a ton for animals. Uh, and within that, there's not a ton for like horses, where, that's where Chris and I did a lot of our work, yeah. but then there's a way less money for wildlife, Yeah. right? And so that's what Chris and I, our approach has always been, if we can use domestic horses or cows or whatever mm-hmm. as a model to then help learn more, wildlife, to help answer yeah. questions about wildlife that can be hard to study because there's not a lot of the numbers. And and then, of course, a lot of them are in the wild. So uh, that's 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 like our approach on it. But it, it does, it, it's, uh, uh, it definitely... Yeah, it takes it takes a village, and it takes it it takes me getting samples sent to my home address. And my boys mm-hmm. had so much fun with um, dry ice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm like don't oh, gotcha. touch it, don't yeah, touch yeah. it. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, and so and then of course, like I said, the analytical chemist that I work with, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is you know, we're helping save Blackfoot affairs that are yeah, critically yeah. endangered, and they're like, huh? And then I give yeah. them my quick elevator pitch, and they're like, okay, cool. Like, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, and they're like, Angie, keep bringing us more clients. And I'm like, well, my clients don't really pay. So <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> like, we don't have uh, any money. We have very, very cheap, little money. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. So uh, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's definitely, and it was fun to be back in the lab this last week uh, because next week I start back in the classroom. So I got to switch gears. Uh, and yeah, we'll stay tuned. We'll definitely let you know how these little black-footed ferrets are doing and what we learn about the results. Of course, we'll put it on social media when we know more. And I'll definitely share more photos of me in my Barbie pink lab coat. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I couldn't resist. They had a whole bunch of different colors to pick from. And I'm like, ooh, I definitely have to pick yeah. pink this week. It is so, in. It is definitely in. Yeah. It women in STEM, is. baby. Yeah. yeah that's gotta, right. That's gotta, right. Got to support that. But, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. But yes. And so this is perfect timing to cover marble pool cats because it just, it just once again reinvigorated my love for these cool creatures that are, be, are so fun to watch. The videos, there's not a ton of videos of marble polecats the way there are for just domestic ferrets, uh, but they all are somewhat similar in the way that they behave and the way they move their bodies and the way they're so playful and so curious. And it just, I just fell in love with this taxon again this week. It's just oh, incredible. Always. There's so many fun ones. And uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when I come back, we're going to talk about some of the other mustelids and and the so difference a, between the polecat and a weasel, weasel and a domestic ferret, yeah. we'll, we'll clear all that up. Yep, yep. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No All right. Welcome back. Uh, let's go through evolution. I mean, we've done mustelids. Uh, they are carnivores, so they're carnivoria. Uh, the family's mustelids are one of our favorites. It's just, uh, there's so many, f- I mean, Pinnipeds are another one that I just love covering. I love every species we cover. I mean, it's just fun. But mustelids, I don't know. They just have a a special place in my heart now. They form the largest family in the suborder Caniformia. So we have about 66 to 70 species and nine subfamilies. So the mustelids, there's quite a bit. So we, we have very many more to cover, like 
the badger. And I don't know which one to do, American badger, or do we do the European badger? Oh, we should put a, a vote on social media. Yeah, yeah see which one. Because there's, I mean, there's a Japanese badger, the Asian badger, mm-hmm. the Vietnamese, Vietnam ferret badger, Chinese ferret badger, Javan ferret badger. There's so many fun ones. That's intriguing. Ferret yeah. badger. Hmm. Yeah. Then you got the otters. So we've done river otters. We did sea otters. Uh, do, I don't know if we did Asian small clawed. I think we did. We had. I don't think we have, and we should no. because yeah. they're the ones that I watch weekly with my boys yeah. at the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. zoo. Yep. So yep. busy, yep. so fun. Yeah. So busy, yes. so fun. That's all I can say. Yeah, and it still goes. Then you got all the Martins. We did the Wolverine, the Fisher. I know you wanted to do at some point. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, we're doing some polecats, other weasels, the mink. Like we haven't even done the mink yet. We did the black-footed ferret. So there's a lot. The Amazon weasel, the Colombian weasel, the American mink. So yeah, fun family. They're just, you look at them all and you just have to love them. Now, the marble polecat, the genus is Vormella. It's the only species. And it's funny, Vormella in German means little worm. Mm-hmm. So Vormella paragusna, which is Ukrainian for yes. polecat. Mm-hmm. So there you go. So it's it's perfect that we're covering the marble polecat for the Ukrainians there and that we're there. Now, as far as subspecies, there's six subspecies proposed based on different pelts. So when you do look at pictures, the pictures, the variations do a little bit. Obviously, region, when you're talking all the way from Europe or the eastern part of Europe all the way to Mongolia, China, you're going to have a lot of variation in there. So there could be six subspecies. They just haven't figured that out yet. Uh, there you go. If you're looking for a study, uh, you can go and, and get some samples and talk to Angie about analytical chemistry or yeah, genetics. So, well, gen- yeah. I say, uh, genetics, or I don't gen- do genetics, but I do. I see a lot. I see. I feel like I see more wildlife genetics jobs than I do wildlife nutritionists or wildlife yeah. uh, reproductive biologists. So yeah. that might yeah. be the way to go. Yeah, I would definitely, we were, during the break, Angie and I were talking, I was talking about my PhD work in genetics and embryonic uh, genome expression and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I can't even remember that. My brain hurts. But definitely, you know, if you're looking a future in conservation, study genetics. It's, It's a fascinating field. I know it can be overwhelming, but like you said, that's where a lot of it uh, is. So we, we, we don't know yet, but I'm sure we will know one day. Okay. As far as evolution, you know, every carnivore goes back to the myosids 55 million years ago. And mustelids make their first appearance during the Oligocene, about 33 million years ago in Eurasia, where these polecats were spread out all the way throughout the planet, except Antarctica and Australia. So that was it. That was interesting. Uh, They got to the Americas very via the Bering Land Bridge. Okay, so they came in through the north and then down to South America when we know Panama is misconnected about 3 million years ago. So then we know there was a big migration of of mammals down into South America. Uh, The mustelids really bloomed about 14 million years ago. The, The climate was transitioning. You went from these dense forests to more open grasslands. That's where you find a lot of mustelids. You know, rodents were expanding, lagomorphs, so your rabbits and other species, because the lagomorphs are always fun to talk about. 
Now, as far as marble polecats, don't have a lot as far as specific evolution. Couldn't really find anything. So we don't have a lot of their evolution in history, but I think they're, they, they had a close relative or marble polecat. It dates back about 4 million years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was ago. reading that uh, researchers think they may have evolved from a creature that was good in the water. So oh, yeah. aquatically yeah. adept. Yeah. So yeah, makes sense maybe. with otters. I mean, being closely mm-hmm. related. Yeah. They're really closely related. Well, and then just when you look at their their closest relatives, there's a subfamily of Ictonchinae. Hope I'm saying that right. So you get the, the lesser greasing, greater greasing, and then you have the Saharan striped polecat, the striped polecat, then the Patagonian weasel, the African striped weasel, and then the marble polecat. So they're all in the same subfamily. But so many, I mean, so many mustelids, so fun. Yeah, I had it kind of broken down as like there's the marble polecat, the striped polecat, the steppe polecat, and the European polecat, all from Eurasia. And then the black-footed ferret, a.k.a. the American polecat from North America. Yeah. Yeah. All, all, yeah. all gorgeous and, animals, too. Mm-hmm. And then, like you mentioned, Chris, there's suggested maybe six subspecies of marble polecats. Yeah. Yep. 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 But in my in my readings, I came across this for Pip, for your partner, since she's from the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not know this, but the European polecat, another one we should cover sometime, but it was basically on the brink of extinction in the UK. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, of course, it used to thrive across uh, Great Britain, but had a lot of problems with gamekeepers and habitat loss and just people wanting to get rid of them thinking they were bad and but luckily through a lot of dedication efforts from several different agencies numbers of the european polecat are now increasing in the countryside of wales oh, so yeah. yeah the uk is super fighting for the european polecats and they actually are protected now um, in their wildlife and countryside act from 1981 Mm-hmm. And have been reestablished as a protected species in 2010 with the uh, biodiversity framework from the UK. Yeah. So well, yeah, UK. I mean, people well, are re- you know, people, countries are realizing how important these creatures are, and so I just thought it was really interesting too to high besides the fact that Pips from the UK to highlight the European polecat, but also because it's my understanding that the European polecat is the direct line or the direct ancestor of our domestic ferret. Uh, Researchers used to think that it was maybe the steppe polecat, which is another species of polecat in Mm -hmm. Europe and Asia, but uh, basically molecular and genetic studies, as we were talking about earlier, have shown, I've proven that it's the European polecat is the main ancestor. It's the closest. It's the closest Mm -hmm. to it. And so, yeah, I thought it was Uh, So this might be a good time to talk a little bit about the differences between what what is known as a ferret, uh, a polecat, and then maybe a weasel or another one of their cousins. I did, I did, yeah, ferrets, but also threw in stoats because it's just like (laughs) stoats are. I always hear it down here. We have stoats. Oh, I was gonna say that's a good one for New Zealand, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can get into it. So, marble polecats lifespan eight to nine years. That's been measured under human care, so that's about right for a for a mustelid. But what is the difference, polecats and weasels? Because it's it's I looked and it's like mm, it's kind of not a lot. It's hard to tell, you know. 
that's where the that's where the geneticists come in, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of it, some of its size, like, so the polecats typically, and, and once again, we're talking gen- not just the marbled polecat, but the the f- five different species of the polecats, including mm-hmm. the black-footed ferret. They're generally bigger, longer, and heavier than the weasel, and then the domestic ferret. Mm-hmm. And the colors, of course, are a little bit different yeah. between yeah. the polecats. Like obviously, the marble, the marble polecat super stands out. The weasel color coat can vary, of course, depending on the species. I think the biggest distinction is that they don't have any white marks on their face. <laughs> so polecats and ferrets have that. I think you call it the raccoon mask, right? The black mm-hmm, and white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So polecats will have uh, that black and white bandit look a lot of time on their face. The weasels, no white marks on the face. And the domestic ferret also typically doesn't have any white marks on its face. So the other big distinction is where they are from, too, Mm -hmm. depending on which little region they're from. And, of course, the ferret, it's domestic, so it's found all over, right? And their diet's the same. The behavior is mostly the same between polecats and weasels. They're very solitary animals, and we'll talk a lot about that. There's some reproductive stuff that's a little bit different. And the ferret is definitely a little bit more social. It's domesticated. Mm -hmm. So it's more social, uh, engages more, obviously, with people. It's comfortable interacting with people. And uh, ferrets are commonly, they're domesticated, so they're commonly kept as pets where a weasel and a polecat, when we get to their stink glands, you do not want them as a pet. No, right? no. They are not no. good pets. I, I, pets, I repeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the marble polecat, it is beautiful, but from a distance, they do not make good pets. They were not domesticated and they are nocturnal species, right? As far as owning a ferret as, as a domesticated pet, uh, yeah, there's... I would I would encourage all of our listeners to do your homework before you get any pet. It doesn't matter if it's a dog or a cat, but any domestic pet, whether it's a rabbit or a domesticated ferret, because there's definitely pros and cons. And so to point out a few of the cons, because of course the pro is they're super cute, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cons of owning a ferret as a pet is if you don't keep them in pairs, a lot of times they'll get lonely. So double the trouble. And, of course, with the anal glands, the ferrets can be pretty stinky, especially if they're not cleaned regularly. They tame down and they can be friendly with people, but they're bitey. And that's just part of their play process. And, of course, they cost money and they can be nocturnal. So it's and they, you know, they need a decent size how cage or house uh, and, and a lot of interaction because they're very smart. And we'll talk about that. I mean, they're very curious because they are carnivores and they're hunters and things like that. So. A lot of times par- ferrets end up in shelters because somebody gets one and they realize this pet is up at night, makes a lot of noise, it's kind of stinky, it's probably not for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do your research, definitely, before you would consider getting uh, getting a ferret um, and or even maybe check your local animal shelter suit. There might be one there. Uh, and then, of course, if you currently have a ferret and you're frustrated with it, there's always, and here in North America at least, there's always pet amnesty places where yeah, you can uh, give your pet away to people that will know how to care for them or and or find them another home as well. Because we just 
obviously I hate to see dogs and cats in shelters. Um, but yeah, it's sad too when you see bunnies and hamsters and guinea pigs and all these other domestic creatures that just didn't work out because probably because of people not doing their research before getting a pet or mm-hmm. uh, something like that. So, yeah. uh, but I think those are the main differences. Am I missing anything between the polecat, the ferret no, and the weasel? No, it's a pretty good uh, summary. I mean, stoats, I just found a source to say that the, the easiest reliable way to tell the difference between stoat and a weasel is the tail, a stoat's tail is about half the length of its body, and it's got a bushy black tip where a weasel's tail is a little bit shorter and stubby and maybe brown in color. I guess it will depend on the species. The other thing is stoats tend to be a little bit larger than weasels. Stoats have a bounding gait, so when they run, they, they have that arch back where they run, where weasels are often flatter when they run. And then... Sometimes, at least in the UK, stoats will turn white in the winter, uh, like up in Scotland where weasels will be brown all year round. So yeah, it's they're all pretty close, but there are some differences, right? And like one of the things you talked about was the anal glands that just, it's, it's like a skunk almost. Well, Chris, before we jump into physiology really quick, uh, just the last few little ferret fun facts I have about the domestic ferret is number one, I was reading that the largest feral ferret population is in New Zealand. There's a, they think they estimate there's about 4,000 ferrets that were released between 1884 and 1886 to help control the rabbit population, which obviously rabbits shouldn't be there either. Mm -mm. So, and then the other thing too, when, when thinking about a, a pet, so you have to do your homework depending on where you, of course, always do your homework if it's the right pet for you. But in the United States, it's actually illegal to own a ferret in California, Hawaii, New York, and Washington, D.C., and in certain communities in other states as well, be probably because of this issue, right? Because sometimes we'll see people that are just like, I'm just going to, oh, this needs to be free. I'm just going to let it go because I live yeah. in Florida mm-hmm. and everything gets released in Florida. And then we have like crazy invasive species. So, yeah. uh, oh, they've been, yeah. Yeah. Devastating so, to, to mm-hmm. native wildlife. Devastating. I remember we talked about it with the Kakapo, which I do want to talk about soon. They just released some 30 minutes. I saw them. Oh, yeah, awesome. I know. I told Jesse we need to go find them. He's like, you'll never find them. <laughs> Something thanks, Jesse, for raiding on my parade. We just had that, that bird. Uh, it's good. They don't release. want people to find them, though. That's the whole point. Well, it's, they're in this in that reserve sanctuary mountain. So mm-hmm. if I do find one, it will be everywhere on social media. I'll be screaming <laughs> on, the, on the podcast. He said they're just tough to see in the bush. Sure, I, but yeah, I mean these flightless birds or ground dwelling birds or birds that aren't used to predators. It's just been a field day for weasels and ferrets and everything that got released here hundred years, hundred plus years ago, and we're trying to eliminate them. You know, predator free by twenty fifty is New Zealand's uh, law. Like they're they're really doing a, a you know a, a big, big push. Effort. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because they are they are so devastating. They don't belong here. Now. Physiology, uh, one thing I was surprised about was our eyesight's weak, which for predators is rare, but really good sense of smell and thinking about their behaviors, they're low to the ground. I guess they, yeah, they would rely more on smell to hunt than just eyesight. And, you know, and then when they're hunting, you know, thinking about that, they, the one thing I was interested in was their, their jaw strength, because it, it said that the jaw strength of a polecat is actually stronger than a ferret. Uh, polecats do eat rodents, like I said, uh, rabbits, lizards, 
um, fish, things like that. And, uh, you know, obviously they are uh, carnivores. So some of the things that they specialize also in squirrels, Armenian hamsters, right? Hamsters, you know, mole rats, <laughs> mole rats uh, up in up in Europe. Uh, but, uh, you know, stuff like that. Sometimes some birds and insects, you know, kind of maybe opportunists sometimes. Yeah, they, they're they're cool because from a nutrition point of view, the marble polecat can rotate between being a generalist mm-hmm. and then also an opportunistic carnivore predator. So, yes, when times are lean, a marble polecat will, yeah, they'll go for insects, beetles, crickets if they have to, but also chickens and pigeons if they need to or ground squirrels or, yeah, so lots of mice, but uh, they're not too shy to eat a lizard as well. Now, I don't have... Marble polecat specifically, but they do have a, a very powerful bite. It's been documented. But there was a study looking at bite for some weasels. And, the re- you know, it's coming out of Australia and Canada. And, and the, these biologists indicated that at least pound for pound or ounce for ounce, the weasel has the most powerful jaws of any predator in North America. So they Ooh. looked at 151 different carnivores. So if you ranked, you know, different carnivores across the planet. So in this study, they said a score of more than 100 indicated a bite greater than expected. So the African lion scored a 124, tiger 130, giant panda 151, which we know doesn't eat meat, but they have to bite that bamboo, right? So, exactly. so pretty good. Where does the weasels score? Well, an impressive 164. So, Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Where's the hyena on that? I didn't see hyena, but the world's strongest bite force of any mammal, would you bet is a hyena? I feel like I would bet it's a hyena. It's not. It's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not? Oh, it, my goodness. Did I know not. this answer? Have we covered the species? Come on, oh you gotta God. remember it. I love this podcast. I need okay, I were charades. You did the vocalization. I need more than that. I need more than that, Chris. Please. It's near and, me. And, and, while you do Rawr! the vocalization. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tazzy Devil, baby. There you go. There you go. Yeah. They ranked a one. I knew it, I knew it all along. I just wanted to hear the vocalizations. <laughs> Tazzy Devils. <laughs> 181. I will get over to Tasmania and find them. I've seen them in the you know, the zoos here. Their story with the transmutable cancer, their conservation That's right. story. I remember yeah. that now. Yes, yeah. yes. More than a hyena even. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Tassie yeah. devils. Yeah. Tassie devils. They're tough. They're tough. Good old Australia. Sure. Yeah. We love you. We love you. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I do want to get over to Tasmania and, and look for them. The- <laughs> and then to track them down and don't get bit by them. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, the oh, ones that goodness. they that they've taken and put on the islands because that was such a great crazy story about them. It's a great episode if you haven't seen or listened to that one, Tasmanian Devils. That they they transmutable cancer, the only cancer we know where they were biting each other and carry on kills or whatever, and they would spread this cancer and it was wiping them out. But uh, conservation efforts have uh, been intense, and you know they're on the rebound, so that's good. Yeah, well. The marble polecat may not be the top bite force in the world, although they're much higher than I would have expected. They, you know, they're hunters and they are mm-hmm. pretty highly evolved, vicious little hunters. 
Uh, they really, like I said, as kind of a generalist and an opportunistic predator, they'll hunt any day, any time of day, really. Uh, research suggests that males might focus on a little bit larger prey with females focusing in on a little bit smaller prey. But the strategy of how marbled polecats hunt basically does de- depend on the size and how aggressive the prey is. And, mm-hmm. and marble polecats, when we talk about intelligence and stuff, they can basically you know, make adjustments on how they're, how they're going to hunt and kill the prey and what they need to do from prey item to prey item. Mm-hmm. And what they'll typically do is a marbled polecat will approach the prey from the side and then use that strong bite force to latch on to the midsection of large prey. And then depending on the size of the prey, uh, if it's small, they hop on their back and just bite into their back. Mm-hmm. And if it's super large, they'll just they'll go right for the, uh, the back of the neck. Mm-hmm. Depending on, the, once again, the size and the aggressiveness of the, of the prey, if there's fighting back, then they'll swoop around and target the throat. Mm-hmm. So me being the nerd that I am, I found a really cool study about feeding habits and predatory behavior of the marble polecat killing method in relation to prey size <laughs> mm-hmm. from behavior in 1991. So it's a dated paper, mm-hmm. but I uh, still think it was very interesting. And the research for this study took place in Israel And they basically watched feeding behavior of 11 marbled cats that were caught in the wild, but then held under human care Mm -hmm. uh, for the study for about, it was, the study was about two years. So they could learn a lot more about them and they, they observed the behavior, they recorded it on film and videotape. And so they would feed them different prey items and just really analyze how, how they would attack and kill their prey. And so from uh, a lot from from tons of observations they were able to basically ascertain that the size of the prey does matter and if it was small uh it was bites to the back or the thorax and if it was large they would go for the head or the neck and if they needed to defend themselves they would never run away they would always just go for the neck um and typically in the throat area they would reach around so yeah i thought i just I was like, wow, that was somebody's job for like two years to just be like, to like analyze, you know, like how they killed prey. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, but it it does, it's, it is really interesting to show how they can adjust and, and make adjustments. And then you have to wonder too, we've talked so much on this podcast too, about like learning and cultural transmission from one orca to the other orchid and how to hunt these seals in, in mm-hmm, a very unique mm-hmm. way. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it, it really got me thinking too, as far as like, okay, is this an instinct for them to know just how to be this incredible killing machine for like large prey items or small prey items and how to adjust? Or is it, I, I mean, they're only, and I'll get to that in behavior. They're, the kits are only with, uh, the dam for not you know not very long. So I, I mean maybe she's teaching them, uh, but I couldn't find any. I don't think there's there's just not that much research done on them. So, mm-hmm. but they yeah. are carnivore, and we do know that car- a lot of carnivores have to learn how to hunt from their parents. So I, I got a lot of answers, but I, it actually brought me into more questions, which I guess that's why we do this podcast. <laughs> yeah, always, always, always. Well, what are some of those other behaviors? 
Well, in general, the marble polecat will be active mostly during the mornings and the evenings. And as you mentioned, their eyesight is weak, so they hunt with their sense of smell. And when a marble polecat isn't hunting, it'll often be found resting in its den. And so the marble polecat will dig a den using those sharp claws. And as far as the type of den they have, uh, they're not super picky. They're opportunistic. So if there is a den that's already started by a squirrel, a ground squirrel or a gerbil, they might use that. Or they'll dig their own den if they can't find one to kind of Mm. build off of. And they dig, 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 dig with their four legs. And they'll actually plant their chin on the ground and then kick out more with their hind legs. Mm -hmm. And if there's any roots or anything like that, they'll use that powerful bite force in their jaws to remove any roots. And if it's cold out or the wintertime, depending on which region they're found in, they'll often line their dens with grass which oh. I thought, I, I love that. Uh, everybody likes a little bit of a comfortable home. And some marble polecats have been observed using their dens to store food as well. So doing some what we call caching behavior, mm. which is pretty cool. Marble polecats are fun to watch, move around similar to ferrets. Uh, if you've if seen any on YouTube videos, they definitely ferret and move around, but they don't typically jump or climb that much. But what they will do that's super cute is they'll sit or stand basically on their hind legs and be in what I call the upright meerkat position. Mm -hmm. So I I always think that's super precious. And when a marble polecat is threatened either by a human or another aggressive animal, uh, what they'll do is they'll definitely puff out. So their fur will stand on end and they'll look all poofy. Mm -hmm. And similar to a cat, they'll arch their back and raise their tail over their back to look even bigger. They might show their teeth and they'll make a lot of vocalizations from hisses to growls to shrills. And if, if a polecat continues to be threatened, of course, they'll release that stinky, stinky, stinky um, <laughs> anal, gra- anal yeah. gland secretion from underneath their tail. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to mess with a uh, a marble polecat too much uh, because they'll look real tough and they'll stink you stink you out of your house and home. Now I love I love how you just described you know their 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 comforts of home with the grass and stuff they bed down. Social though because you did mention meerkats which aren't mustelids but are they social are they solitary? No, they're yeah they they're no no similarities with their social behavior yeah. like meerkats uh yeah. which we need we uh we need to look into that them again they were so fun to cover mm-hmm. uh but yeah marble polecats are typically solitary and they really only tolerate each other during breeding season other than that they will do the aggressive displays to one another if they cross each other within their territories so yes no they're they're definitely they definitely like to be alone in general and so some of their vocalizations. Actually, Chris's Tasmanian devil wasn't too far off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, the marble polecat will definitely do an aggressive shriek uh, or shrill alarm cries, grunts. So it has has some not very pretty vocalizations, I suppose. Uh, Grunts even and... And then when they actually are being submissive, whether it's during breeding season or encountering each other mm-hmm. in the wild, uh, that the marble polecat will also have a very long, low shriek. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, the videos where I've seen them interact with humans in the wild is it's, there's definitely a, a loud, aggressive shriek, I guess. It's not a bark because it's not deep. It's high pitched. And yeah, uh, I think you should actually try to do the <laughs> try to do the imitation of it. I think you'd be better at it than me. Like, yeah, yeah, no, uh, I'll pass. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what happens when they do get social and uh, they, they need to breed? So, yeah. So, depending on where the mole, marble polecat lives throughout Eurasia, uh, they typically will come together for breeding purposes in the springtime, which in the northern hemisphere is between March and June. And uh, as far as courtship goes for marble polecats, I couldn't really find a lot, just that there were certain mating calls that were usually less shriek-like and shrill-like and more lower in tone and rumbling with like slow and rhythmic and not as crazy and loud and shriek-like. And so when the female is an estrus and accepting of the male and they do breed, this is where it gets fun. Super nerdy and super fun for me, Chris. Okay. So the gestation period of the marble polecat is variable and by variable i mean it can last 40 days or 10 to 11 months yep and so that's that's crazy so what's happening here is marble pole cats when they have the longer gestation period is they're experiencing what's known as delayed implantation Mm -hmm. and so delayed implantation means that the egg and sperm are fertilized and the embryo has started developing but it's paused. And researchers still don't understand how this happens on a chemical basis, but somehow the embryo is frozen in time in the uterus of the mom until a later period. Maybe it's eight months, maybe it's 10 months. It just depends. Mm-hmm. What we researchers do know about delayed implantation, I guess, or theorize is that it's a great strategy to have because it allows the marble polecat to time the birth of her cubs or her kits for favorable conditions. So when prey is abundant, so maybe when the grasses are green or there's more of them. And so there's a big difference between a little over a month to almost a year. However, we could probably theorize, though, that if a female marble polecat gets pregnant in, let's say, June... And there's just no, not that many rodents. Her body can basically delay the development of that embryo or mm-hmm. uh, several embryos because the litters are typically between four and eight cubs or kits of, of, of marble polecats. She can wait. And then hopefully mm-hmm. the next year or not quite the next year, but the next spring, maybe in that March, rains come in, grasses are greener. Mm-hmm. Mice and other rodents are happier, and voila, she has more food. Mm-hmm. And then there's some chemical messenger that triggers this embryo to to unpause and develop, continue developing, and then it and, and then it goes pretty rapidly. It takes about thirty or forty days, mm-hmm. is what and that's what we see in captivity when there's tons of nutrition and that's not mm-hmm. an issue. Now, what I found fascinating, Chris, and I had to go back and I, I did some digging, uh, is I didn't remember that with black-footed ferrets. Like, they've got some reproductive issues. Don't get me wrong. A lot of times it's a little bit more in the male and uh, the males and their sperm quality and morphology. But 
I couldn't remember in the feed. I, I was like, I don't think black-footed females in North America, I don't think they do delayed implantation. And they don't, that we know yeah, of. The ferrets, in yeah. fact, what I, my understanding is, is none of the other polecats, the steppe, the European polecat, they don't do it as well. So mm. I, it's my understanding. I could be wrong because I didn't spend as much time with all the other European, Eurasian polecats. But I, the, I don't, I don't know. If, I don't think they do delayed implantation. So that's a question I have. And yes, I will be nerding out when Chris and I get off the podcast because yeah. now I want to. Now I want to make sure I'm right. But I know black-footed ferrets, from my understanding, from what researchers know, don't mm. do it. Uh, so yeah, they're pretty unique when it comes to that. And I, it's, a, it's an amazing strategy. A lot of other carnivores do it. They're not alone. There's several other species that Chris and I have covered that do exhibit delayed implantation. So you'll have to listen to all the podcasts, tune in mm. about that, more about that. But it's a cool strategy. It has all it has everything to do with nutrition, which is Chris and I, it's one of our nerd specialties. But we still don't know a lot about it, right? So yeah, yeah. when you do think about, too, when we think about trying to get the population is vulnerable and trying to get their numbers up i mean it's not as easy as one two three like they might not have kits every every year yeah yeah so yeah, but we'll repopulate mm-hmm. but we do know when a female marbled polecat does give birth her cubs or her kits i want to call them the litter size is anywhere from four to eight and they're darling mm-hmm. <laughs> and their eyes are closed uh and they typically will open their eyes around 38 to 40 days. And then around day 50 to day 55, the young are weaned. And they start to leave and disperse the area of their den around day 65 to day 70. And by day 80 to 90, the cubs are full size and ready to Mm -hmm. rock and roll. And so the predatory behavior that the researchers I mentioned have recorded in 1991 and then since then there's been a little bit of other work done about some of the hunting behavior that's seen at a really early age but i don't know if it's with mom or not i I couldn't find those answers as well uh so i don't know if she teaches them to hunt uh but they leave the nest or not the nest but they leave the den so early that Mm -hmm. i i have to i feel like they're kind of on their own a lot but once again i could be wrong because we just I couldn't really find a lot about that. So yeah. I do know that the marble polecat will reach sexual maturity at one year of age. And then that's when they'll start being reproductively active and potentially having kits of their own. Well, yeah, I mean, they, like you said earlier, they are vulnerable. I mean, they're declining across their range. Habitat destruction, big one. You know, a lot of farming in that part of the world has led to a lot of re- large reduction. The, uh, human reduction of rodents, their prey, that's that's what happened with black-footed ferrets. They were poisoning prairie dogs. Yeah. And that had a massive impact. So uh, they are facing some challenges in, in that part of the world. But, you know, we in social media have been, have been highlighting them. So who's out there uh, fighting for these marbled polecats? Yeah, well, I couldn't really find a group specifically dedicated mm-hmm. to marble polecats. Yeah. Or even to polecats in general. So if any of you budding philanthropists out there want to start one of those, hippos also need a group. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to convince my husband that we should do hippo nonprofit. You and, and Corbett, you guys can I go know, yeah. I know. Exactly. Yeah. Like I feel like yeah, each species needs their own nonprofit mm-hmm. fighting for them. And uh but yes, yeah, so 
polecats, unfortunately, don't have that. But I did find a group out of Europe called wildlifetrust.org that does a lot of conservation for habitats and wildlife in Europe. And the polecat is one of them that they do highlight. Uh, mm -hmm. So you can check them out. But I really want to also turn a spotlight on today is the Ukrainian Nature Conservation Group, because this whole podcast was to also highlight what's happening in the wildlife in these regions. And so www.uncg.org.ua slash en backslash is the Ukrainian National Conservation Group, which is an NGO that aims to basically consolidate experts from across the region to protect biodiversity and support the network of protected areas already in Ukraine and to establish more of them. And because of the crisis happening in Ukraine right now in that region, uh, their biggest goal is to basically save wildlife in times of war by working mm -hmm. together uh, with experts and just people from all over. And to do this, the Ukraine Nature Conservation Group works with forest conservation, environmental impact assessment, nature reserves, biodiversity, and other NGOs to conserve habitat, to help conserve species, and to protect wetlands and forests and grasslands. So their website, I highly recommend you check it out at, once again, www.unc.org.ua slash en. Chris and I will put it on our show notes and also promote it in social media because there's a lot of ways that you can help them out right now, especially because they are uh, experiencing this war, this crisis here, uh, not only, of course, severely impacting the humans and their homes, but also the homes of wildlife as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a really good point, Angie. And just a fun species, a fun little cute one. Again, if you have any species you want us to cover that we haven't, please reach out to us. You can email us allcreaturespod at gmail.com or check us out on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, if you haven't left a review yet on iTunes, please do. And Angie will read out your name on the air. And uh, we just appreciate you listening and the, the kind words, the, the pictures from the Swiss Alps and wherever you are in the world, you know, thank you for caring and listening to this podcast and wanting to know more about these animals. You know, each week we're going to keep telling these stories. We have more interviews on the way. We've been busy. I just did one yesterday. Uh, that will be out soon. And she's got a couple in the bank, three, I think three in the bank that you've done that we need to get out uh, very soon. So look for those, but uh, thank you for listening. Yes. Thank you for listening, for caring, for definitely for sharing as well. It takes a village, and you guys are our conservation heroes as well. So, thank you. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.